If you haven't heard Zach Stein before, you're in for a treat. Zach has been brilliant, an educator, philosopher, teacher, author, and a leading thinker about our social and global crises. In this episode, he explains the metacrisis, the sum total of the social, global, and environmental threats we face, their roots in our individual and collective immaturities and pathologies, and the ways in which so much of our media feed these pathologies. But Zach also points to how, by learning about these things, we can become more resilient and begin to help heal ourselves, our societies, and our planet. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today is Dr. Zachary Stein, who is a rare creature in these days of increasing specialization and siloed information. Zach is a true polymath, someone who has really mastered several fields of information. But more than just uh, disparate fields of information, he's also very much an integrative thinker, and even more, an integral thinker someone in the integral world who has brought together a synthesis of diverse areas of information with his own areas of specialty, of course. He's an educator, a philosopher, a futurist, an author. He graduated from the Harvard University School of Education and has published two books on education, one, Social Justice and Educational Measurement, and the other, a surprisingly popular book, and I say surprisingly not because it doesn't deserve it, but because it is a deep, thoughtful text titled Education in a Time Between Worlds, Essays on the Future of Schools, Technology, and Society. And I'll just say that uh, I was when many people wrote a blurb for this book, and like anyone, like a lot of us, I get a lot of requests for blurbs, and very few I accept, but Zach's work I so esteem that I certainly wanted to provide a blurb for it, and a very heartfelt one at that. And we all have more to read these days than we can possibly manage, but Zach is one of the very, very few people that I really try to read whatever he writes. I don't succeed, of course, because he writes a lot and very well, but I do try to read what he writes, and I enjoy it dramatically. So we could talk about many topics today, but what we would like to focus on particularly is a central theme that runs throughout Zach's recent work, and that is his writings and thought about the contemporary global crises we face, what is often now quite recently referred to as the meta-crisis, the sum total of the issues we face, both the material ones in the outside world, but also the inner psychological cultural issues. So, Zach, maybe a good place to start would just be to welcome you and to ask you to say a little bit about what the metacrisis is or what that term refers to, because it's pretty new. Mm. Thanks, John and Roger. You know, the, the metacrisis, I actually first heard that term at the 2015 Integral Theory Conference. So say it's, a, you've, it's, it's become very popular recently and, and importantly popular, which is to say it's good that it's becoming part of more people's 
language. But I first heard it in 2015 at the Integral Theory Conference in Sonoma. Hans Despain, who was a very close colleague of Roy Pascar, uh, when Pascar and Wilbur were brought together by Sean Hargens. So it was very interesting because even then it was this notion that, listen, there are so many unfolding things happening as the 21st century begins. So many complex, dangerous situations, economic, ecological, human health, human education, disease, warfare, energy, food, <laughs> right? Technology, <laughs> sense-making crisis. So it's just, you can literally go on and on. So some people were talking about the, the omni-crisis. Some people talk about the poly-crisis. Some people talk about the perma-crisis. Kind of like that one. <laughs> the meta-crisis is, is more specific, and it's got different dimensions to it. More recently, in my work with Daniel Schmachtenberger, we've been defining the meta-crisis in a couple of ways. One, the most abstract way, is to think about it as the, the total space of all the related crises. Right? That there's an emergent total space where all the crises actually interact and have effects on one another. So you have an ecosystem of interrelated dynamics. Many of them are in crisis. Not everything's in crisis, but a lot is. So the metacrisis brings attention to that, you could call it a hyperspace of crisis interaction effects. So in some ways, it's like if you're, if you're a biologist and you go into the field, you can study each organism in the meadow, or you can look at the meadow as an ecosystem. And both views are important. And so one way to think about the metacrisis frame is as it's a gestalt shift to look at the whole planetary situation, which is, of course, incomprehensible, but one needs to orient to it in different ways than you orient to the trees, if you will. That's one thing. When you start to look at it that way, then you can even begin to articulate the metacrisis as foundationally a crisis at the root of the way we make choices about civilization itself, that the metacrisis is an educational crisis. It's a crisis of the mind. Like I remember when Ken pointed out in Sex, Culture, Spirituality, again, 95, says something like, it's not the CO2 in the atmosphere, and it's not the weapons and the arsenals, it's the way we make decisions. <laughs> this is the main risk to Gaia. This is the main risk to the biosphere and to, the, to a civilization that could exist in perpetuity. The main risk is our inability to make decisions according to the right maxims and principles and values, if you will. So that's another useful way. So one way is like a complex dynamical system science of planetary risk, where you look at the hyperspace of all interrelated risks. And that's massively transdisciplinary applied design science effort. This is kind of some of the work with Schmachtenberger. Another way to look at it is, well, the root of all that <laughs> is the human mind and the very source code, the very superstructure of how civilizations are designed and rebooted or maintained even. And that's foundational philosophical work, which is also very important. So you know, the work I've done with, with Gaffney and Ken for a decade is at that level, thinking about a neo-perennialism, thinking about a world philosophy that would be adequate to a civilization that could actually exist in perpetuity within planetary boundaries. So they come together. So that's that broadest frame of, of metacrisis. And what it can do, ideally, is, and I may not have done that here, 
is actually relieve it begins it gives a second simplicity it relieves the tension of having to track all the particular crises with your left hemisphere <laughs> and gives permission to step back to the intuitive gestalt of the planetary whole which can be perceived it's actually a sublime and terrifying experience but it's there it's an aesthetic experience so the move between the whole and the part in the addressing of planetary risk is what's necessary and the whole right now again is a transdisciplinary effort that we're trying to catalyze through collective intelligence and then eventually ai ai enabled planetary coordination protocols which are necessary to avert most of the major crises or not can be addressed by any existing current power structure so the meta crisis frame also requires a new kind of form of praxis at the planetary level which got new coordination protocols and institutions they need to be infused with a world philosophy that's actually adequate to that scale of civilizational enterprise short of that it gets really bumpy <laughs> really quick so the meta crisis is also it's also about existential risk and catastrophic risk which is to say that when you look at the compounding effects you start to see a near-term future that's quite precipitous that's quite um, tragic that we're poised to have a lot of things go wrong pretty quickly so when you look at the meta crisis you have to think of like three time scales one would be the near-term immediate stuff that needs to be addressed and then there are these transitional structures, which is what I write about in my book. Education in a time between worlds implies that to unwind the meta crisis and mitigate it, we need to actually create a new, fundamentally new kind of civilization. It may not even be best referred to as civilization. This is a very complex question. <laughs> a post-civilizational form of, of human technology uh, biosphere interface. Now I'm rambling, so you should probably ask me another question. But that's the broad. This is the broadest <laughs> metacrisis. This, I think, is is the broadest. Okay. Yeah, Zach, that was really well said. I've never had anybody spell it out quite that graspably before. So thank you. And so, I guess a two part question from your perspective and from what you're seeing. Where do you see the hope right now emerging in, in this time of great crises on all the different levels that you? that you talked about, and if you see hope now or something that we have to, to generate before we can hope, and what would you counsel us as individuals, given that, how we should live and what should we be doing to be part of this solution and not just more of the problem? Hmm. So it's interesting, like, there's a notion that I think can trace us to Habermas, which is the dialectic of enlightenment, that every time you solve a problem, you create a new problem. That every time you solve a very important problem, you create a new problem. Dialectic of progress, I think, yeah. Exactly, a dialectic of progress. This is true across many domains. It's a very interesting to apply it to personal development, but that's another conversation. But in historical development, you see that the meta crisis isn't the result of some terrible mistake. Now we're at the cusp of it where we could start making terrible mistakes. And we have, of course, made terrible mistakes, but we've also solved a bunch of problems that needed to be solved and then created problems we didn't, we couldn't anticipate in the creation of those solutions. So there's nothing about the metacrisis that implies something faulty about the human, which is important to get. If you read it very skeptically and nihilistically, you could say, well, good riddance to the human. It's like a <laughs> you know, paras parasite on this beautiful planet that's run out of control, right? which is not the way to view it. In fact, we are massively successful. We're dealing with our own success as a as a species. 
specifically the success of, of a particular form of intelligence, if you will, the rational, scientific, technological mind. And again, back to Habermas has been long pointed out <laughs> that we're looking at an imbalance again, which can be thought of even in the individual. If there are at least three modalities that the psyche can develop in right? intelligence and soul and transcendence, let's say, <laughs> which could just be I, we, and it, you could just think about it in that way. The, the personal, the intersubjective and ethical and the objective, rational, operative, controlling intelligence, right? Which evolved and made us able to create technologies and tools. So I guess what I'm saying here in a long way is that we're not looking at some terrible set of mistakes. We're actually looking at having to harness a particular series of really good successes. Just like in personal development, you kind of make your path in a certain direction. You build a bunch of skills in a certain direction. Your life gets out of balance, but you actually, as a result of your success, you've gotten out of balance. <laughs> and so you need to actually you need to rebalance the, the domains that are given attention. So one of the things that gives me hope is the inevitable, and I'm already seeing it, the turn away from the technologies of psychological control that are maintaining the civilization, right? So the turn inward, some of this can be seen in the meditative traditions that are gaining precedence. Some of it can be seen in the psychedelics movement that is gaining precedence. You see it in the circling movement that is gaining precedence. You see it in the even technologies that are trying to induce transcendent states and the study of it. So I, I do think there are times of imbalance in personal development, and then there are times where you regain wholeness to have continued health. So at civilizational scale now, we're going through a, a need to rebalance. It's urgent and it's quite precarious the way that kind of an adolescent crisis can be life-threatening. The adolescence ability to drive cars and to <laughs> move money between things and to go on the internet and do all kinds of things that require abstract intelligence, just running ahead in order to secure survival and experience and things of that nature. What's lagging behind are the ethical and let's say spiritual dimensions of the psyche that balance that out, create wholeness, impose limits, things of that nature. So that's one way to look at the situation. That there are there's there's hope still. Yeah. And like John, I found I found you the overview effect you gave us valuable, and particularly I found very valuable your framing of the meta crisis as allowing us to step back and and kind of get an intuitive sense of what is far beyond our intellectual comprehension. So many variables, so many issues all interact in complex ways beyond intellectual comprehension. And what I hadn't appreciated was the possibility of looking at the whole might allow us to get an intuitive sense and a feel for it that uh, allowed a more effective and intuitive way of, of responding and, and feeling into it. That, and that brings us to a related issue here, as which you speak of as part of the meta crisis, and that's what is often referred to as a sense-making crisis, that we are dealing not just with a set of you know, physical issues or material problems in the world ranging from economic to weapons to, you know, you name it. But we are dealing with a whole new ecosphere of in information sphere, partly predicated on the new media, the way in that which they're being misused, partly predicated on the 
complexity, but rather than me talking about this, maybe you could say a little bit about uh, your take on the, what's called the sense-making crisis. Let me address your first point about the meta crisis as intuitive, and then the yeah, then please. So, in one sense, it's it's completely correct. That's actually you're looking at a hyperspace that's so complex that you're forced into, let's say, right brain oriented, intuitive gestalt perception over control, manipulation, and prediction. So that's completely true. And it's important that scientists be able to hold that type of mentality because there are also analytics that you can run on that hyperspace. Um, just tracking second and third order effects of interventions in the complex systems. You can you don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but you're pretty sure <laughs> if you do that, eventually the complex dynamical system will eventually do these two things. So you can make those types of, like the weather, for example, you don't know exactly when it's going to start to rain, but they're getting pretty good at predicting it. Right? But it's a, it's a complex dynamical system. It's hard to intervene in. That's I'll just say that you need both of those. You need both the intuitive and the analytical. Yeah, good point. Yes, and it's about the relationship between them, and specifically, and this is McGillivray's point. It's about the the dominance, or not the dominance, but the the sovereignty given to the intuitive gestalt decision, consulting the analytical, and then returning to the whole situation. And that would be the recommendation with people working on specific risk, you know, specific problems in the world is that you, you zoom out, see all the interrelated things that your problem's connected to. Maybe even talk to all of them. You zoom back in, try to work on your problem, zoom back out and start to see, is this, is the way I'm working on this actually interacting, moving through the space? Yeah. So a perspectival fluidity yes. is really needed. Yeah. So this, yeah. So the sense-making crisis, oh man. <laughs> yes. That's my reaction. <laughs> yeah. So. So the Consilience Project, which is work again with me and Schmachtenberger and Sam Berger and Jess Webb, a great team of, of people in there. When we began it, we wanted to write specifically about uh, issues related to the pandemic and longer term civilizational design and biosecurity and a few of them. What we found as we began to try to do that was that the ecosystem of information itself that we were trying to speak into was so booby-trapped with polarized language, for example, was so weaponized in terms of its basic, basic dynamics that we found we had to start to talk about that before we could have the conversation we actually wanted to have, which was about the metacrisis. <laughs> and so the sense-making crisis was a term that's been around for a while. Uh, and sense-making is a term that's been around for a while, both in organizational theory and in interestingly, forms of cognitive science that merged out of Piaget in the 80s. There's a work around that. And if you think about sense-making, it is basically the way you orient to reality. So you have a personal sense-making system, right? It's like gravity is a great one. Most people in their personal sense-making system, no matter what else they think, have some rough understanding of gravity, right? Uh, that if you drop this thing, it'll fall down. It's so reliable. It just locks in there, reliable sense-making. So that's important. When you have institutions and organizations, even like a small company, it has to make it has to make sense. The company has to make sense of its environment and, and its internal process. So then you scale that up to a country, and now you have a country, you have a kind of public sense-making, and that's the basis of what democracy is supposed to be. So like if the country is if the country is steered, literally like moved around by 
the, the way the public makes sense of itself and the world and the situation, then you need really good public sense making. But precisely because a democracy runs on public sense making, public sense making has been subject to manipulation. This is, this is always it has been. So we needed a free press, but we also needed independent educational institutions. It was, it was always a complex mix. On the Consilience Project website, you can see these series of papers on propaganda, which gets into this dimension, which was that we associated with like Soviet Union and and things like that. And uh, that's not wrong association, but the propaganda that the United States has created for its own citizens has been very powerful, very influential, very subtle, and continues to this to this day. So one dimension of the sense-making crisis is information warfare. So one of the reasons it's hard to kind of trust the news, right? <laughs> one of the reasons it's hard to trust the politicians and the reason they have so many speechwriters, this is because we've been living in an environment since the Cold War where some of the dominant relationships between countries and superpowers have been propaganda wars, not actual bombs and bullets. But means and phrases and commercials and movies and things. So that, that needs to be noted. That was always kind of going on. And the hypothesis is that with the emergence of the digital, with the emergence of social media specifically, and other algorithmically curated kind of content feeds that people live by, that the disruption to public sense making was acute and extreme and very disorienting that the digital alone, its emergence would have been disorienting because the move from print, <laughs> which was a long-standing primary technology of information distribution was print <laughs> to the digital. And we take the digital, I wouldn't say we, but the younger generations take it for granted that there's instantaneous information, compression, transmission of multiple sensory modalities across the whole planet. Very, very different than text than getting the newspaper printed in Paris the next day, right? So pretty abrupt switch to a basic fundamental communications technology change. So that would have disrupted sense-making alone, just that. But that occurred and emerged into an environment where there was a pre-existing, long-standing information war occurring for a very long time. And so that, that makes it now complex. And understand that when I say that, it is also, you know, it's, it's the obvious ones you'd think about. Like you remember in the 2016 election, the presence of Russian propaganda. This was like in the news, computational propaganda specifically. So Russia, Iran, China, obviously. But then the important point to get, unfortunately, is that our own political parties have, through their competition in the bi-party system and the way we vote, been set up into a situation where they are propagandizing the, our country against itself in order to get voters, you see, using all the tricks of computational propaganda. That's, that seems a very important point, yeah. It, it is. So it's, it's not just that we have to worry about the Russians and the Iranian cyber troops, of which they have many. And it's very interesting. There's a whole story about the KGB transformed its operations into the basically like a, what looked like an internet startup company with young people who were basically trolling Americans um, in very complex ways, having dozens and thousands of accounts run by bots and things of that nature. So it's like an operation. We have those operations. And we try to defend the worst of that, which we should, and we could do it more easily if we shut down all the bots and like 
protected some spaces. But even then, our own political parties got very strategic with their with their advertisement campaigns, basically, is the way they would understand it. <laughs> some of the best people who worked in propaganda during World War II and the Cold War were the very people responsible for starting what we know of the as the advertising industry. So that's another dimension of it. At this point, we've reached kind of peak advertising, peak peak exposure to manipulative communication all the time from many channels. Right? Like if you are on your computer a lot, especially if you're on social media sites or being algorithmically led through streams of content as you scroll, there's many things that do that. YouTube does that and other things. You know, you're caught in a situation with that technology where it is designed to manipulate you. So it's doing a lot of things for you, yes, beneficial, but it's also designed to capture your attention specifically. And then some of them are designed to be their advertisement platforms, their value proposition, the way they actually make money is not from you. You get it free. The way they actually make money is to sell the idea that they can manipulate your behavior to people who want to manipulate your behavior. This is called advertising. What's advertising trying to do is trying to get you to try to manipulate your behavior. Facebook says, hey, we're really good at manipulating behavior. Hey, here's a scientific study that shows we can manipulate voter behavior. You want to run some ads through our behavior manipulation machine? It's very functional. Well, that's, that's how that's Facebook's business model. They say it's connecting the world, and it is connecting the world. But at a more fundamental level, it's actually value proposition is that it controls behavior. So that's peak advertising because you're living with the thing in the palm of your hand. It used to be you would drive to work, you'd see several billboards, maybe. Maybe you'd have the radio on and there'd be a couple ads. Pop music at first wasn't, but then pop music became propaganda <laughs> one form or another. So then, yeah, now you're in a situation where you're getting a sound sound of kind of like subtly manipulative information. And so... So Zach, yeah, this is really heavy stuff. So on the one hand, the left brain analytical mind has to be on to sort through this stuff. And on the other hand, without the right brain, holistic way of seeing thing or part of us that is connected with the perennial wisdom that our species has generated, it's problematic. If you, if when we see what happens when people just go with thoughts and feelings as QAnon, you know, facts, evidence has nothing to do with it. You know, it's not, that's not important. Just the feelings that that's it's horrific information about these things that are going on evoking people. And of course, it's very similar to what was evoked against the Jewish people prior to the Nazi era and the, you know, know, drinking babies' blood and, you know, sacrificing Christian babies for, you know, that sort of same sort of stuff is generated. But if you, if we divorce ourselves from that right side of our brain, that capacity, then we have this dry, disenchanted reality that doesn't seem to be able to come up with anything that approaches wisdom or a way to live that is good, not only for ourselves, but for the planet and for all all sentient beings. So how do we kind of struggle to bring these two halves of our intellect into a way that is, is at one truthful and factual and, and based in science and based in evidence 
And on the other hand, based on our highest values and the information that the great sages and mystics have been telling us throughout time, and which we found in our own explorations, how do we bring that and find a way of sense-making that makes our current evolutionary place tenable and functional and on track, if you will? Hmm. There's a lot in there, right? So like right now, mostly in the space of information, if you come and you say, hey, you need facts and evidence and science, you've actually you've actually just taken a side in the information war. Facts, evidence, fact checking in particular is a great example. Fact checking is very clever way. It's like a meta move in the information war space, which actually can take facts out of context and check them against things that prop up a particular narrative and it's almost obviously politicized fact checking. So this is an example. So most good propaganda works on your intuition primarily. So when you say emotion and feeling, that is another way of saying your gut sense of what's real. Propaganda is operating at that level. And it's actually, it's trying to, good propaganda is trying to short circuit your thinking by making you think you're thinking, right? It's making you simulate, it's making you simulate thinking. And so the classic thing here is what's called the thought terminating cliche. Right. So, for example, follow the science is a thought terminating cliche. It's a predictable thing, someone will say, which ostensibly seems informed, but in fact is not, and stops the conversation, actually, because no one's in a position to do that. <laughs> and they know it, and they're not. So, but follow the science basically says, shut up, I'm right. Shut up, I'm right. <laughs> Usually. But it uses a thought terminating cliche. So, so this is where it gets very complex that the, that the very things we use to have arguments are the words given to us by propagandists. And so we talk on the Consilience website about bad faith communication and the ubiquity of it, basically, that because we're in this surround sound of advertising propaganda algorithmic attention capture, we're constantly kind of being manipulated, we become habituated to a certain kind of speech and orientation, which ends up being, even despite our, our best interests, miscommunication. So yeah, so I think it's worth noting that the, the intuitive is what drives the propaganda. They're trying to paint a broad picture, often using facts. The best propaganda is the New York Times. That's been well documented. There are whole books on it. <laughs> the Gray Lady Winked is a good example. The best propaganda can be fact-checked through and through. It's only the crude, stupid propagandists who lie. Let's put it that way. And again, I've written this through in those Consilience paper propaganda series where you see that no, it's actually very important to get the facts right. You just select which facts you present. <laughs> And you don't put these other facts, which are also true, in there, and you present a true story, which could be completely fact-checked. And so our stereotypical sense of where the propaganda is, is the obvious stuff, where they basically lie to the stupid people. But good propagandists know that, in fact, the most well-educated can be the best <laughs> subjects of propaganda, because they will, they, will they will have very articulate, very well-informed responses. And then you're playing at a very high level information warfare where you're dealing with high culture and books. And again, you look at the book, The Free World 
by Louis Menand, which shows the work of information warfare in the highest reaches of American culture during the Cold War, which is to say, you know, we wanted Jackson Pollock to succeed because it was so much different than what the Russians were doing, right? Like we wanted Woodstock. We wanted Jimi Hendrix to play the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. It's an amazing piece of American propaganda. And we beat the Russians with rock and roll machines, fundamentally, at a very high level. And um, when they were you know, doing ballet and stuff. Zach, so l- let me get clear here, the, the way you're using propaganda, because in one sense, we could say that any, the making of any, any large perspective argument is, a, is propaganda. But are you drawing a distinction here? The distinction is that propaganda is, is a strategic relation of communication fundamentally. So it looks a lot like education. Right. And Mm -hmm. really, you can't understand propaganda without understanding that it is the evil twin of education. So is it inherently in bad faith we're talking about when we use the word inherently in bad faith? So that's the simplest difference is that education can give you the same information sometimes, (laughs) almost in good faith, where the intention is for you to really understand what the hell's going on and eventually come up to understand it as well as I do. And thank God now you do. My student has surpassed me. Now you can operate on reality and replace me as a member of the species, which is what education is about, intergenerational transmission. You want your kids to know what's going on so that when you die, they can actually run the society. So that means you're, you're incentivized to orient together towards what's true. Right? But there is an asymmetry for a while. You, you are in a position of greater power. You are in a position to know more. They are in a position dependent upon your information stream to be informed and to grow. So it's very symmetrical to the propagandist who has no intention of orienting you to reality, whose intention is to get you to do something, and has no intention of actually bridging the epistemic asymmetry, which is to say they don't want you to ever be in a position to know as much as they know. So it's a purely strategic information exchange, usually with the intention of certain behavioral outcomes. And there's a key distinction uh, that education at its best does not have a covert agenda, whereas propaganda does. Well, sometimes education will, but it's a good one. (laughs) Like, it's that when you're doing things for the kids and you know someday they'll be really glad, you know, you can't explain to them exactly now why it's important to begin doing X, Y, Z thing. You incentivize it and they're doing it and actually enjoy it, but they don't understand that actually your intention was a curriculum that unfolded across a couple of years. And you had this sequence put in place and you didn't show them the sequence. Good educators do that. Parents set their kids up for stuff and they don't explain the intention as they're sending the kids to sports, go have fun, but really you want them to be healthy and live a long life. So it's not that you don't, it's not the full disclosure and transparency. It's not that it's the intention and the orientation. And that leads to certain kinds of information being available upon request, right? Which are not available on request propaganda situation. Yeah. And the, Covert and the, this in the the education being at least potentially one's motivation is potentially fully available, and, but in the propaganda, there's a covert agenda which one hope that the propagandist hopes will not be recognized. Correct. Yeah, you don't don't want it to be recognized. You the propagandist wants you to think that the people you don't like are the ones who are propagandized, mm-hmm. and you. Yeah. Because you read the New York Times, for example, so that then you're stuck. If you if you think you're not being subject to propaganda, <laughs> you are. 
Like so that and that's so this is it's very manipulative. And then when you get at the four, it's called fourth and fifth generational warfare, where you get the business interests of people like China moving into our advertising and academia, and you start to get this very complex creation of a simulation around certain situations in the environment. So just saying. Like, for example, Fukushima, when's the last time you saw a headline on Fukushima? It's actually a huge problem still. Huge problem. <laughs> but nobody knows. And it's not because we're lying about it. We're just not pointing to those facts. And and might we be seeing that propaganda that is directed at different levels of development? Like you say, the New York Times is is propaganda. And OAN, for example, certainly is. But they're not shooting for the same audience they're looking for. for yes, and they're smart enough to do that. Again, the best psychologists were recruited to the war effort. And the best psychologists and educators were recruited to Eisenhower's Cold War in psychological warfare operations internationally. So we've been typing and developmentally leveling propaganda for a very long time. Like, you know, if you do it in a tribal village, you're not, you go with a microphone and have a translator in their language and know their customs. And I mean, it's crazy the way in which we did it. So you're right to see it just as sophisticated as an advertisement company would be in targeting you to try to get you to sow the propagandists or I would argue probably more so. And we see this with the way the voting, again, our political parties doing that to each other. And I notice as you're describing this, Zach, I get this feeling of a kind of overwhelm, a kind of epistemological or informational overwhelm and motivational overwhelm that uh, kind of uh, a kind of paranoia. It's like, okay, every every message is potentially politicized or or weaponized in some way. And so, how do I, as a as a human being, find my way? ruin out out of that or, or transcended in some way that's yeah. so that's the question i find in my gut right now as i as i listen to this that's that's where you have to go because as soon as you if you really let it in then it's like waking up like in a like in a battlefield or something <laughs> you know yeah, it's but, like and, red pill or something yeah, then, then you actually know where you are it's not definitely the red pill is deeper into one of the verticals, right? So that's what you have to get. It's like most of the places where they say they're breaking you out of the matrix are actually just breaking you into a propaganda funnel. Because the main distinction here is psychological sovereignty, right? Which is which is to say we're school and again, schooling from an educationist, schooling is a big part of what makes you amenable to propaganda. It's like one interesting but very cynical definition of what schools do is that they make you increasingly open to propaganda, right? Which is, again, the developmental thing, which means the higher up you go in the developmental stack, the more sophisticated your propaganda intake can become. <laughs> if, you, if you can't read, then you can't be subject to a whole lot of propaganda, for example. Well, Zach, I would imagine the education that you're talking about some of its primary goals would be first to create good faith actors through leadership, through example, through. Yeah, no, I'm going to get to what actual. Yeah, there's actual education. There's, and this is the point with actual education is that it creates intellectual or psychological sovereignty. So if you're being educated in a way that prepares your propaganda, then you come to believe that you do not have the capacity to know truth, full stuff. Other people do, and they tell you what it is. And you have the capacity to follow truths, right? And to like deduce things to be true. 
and to operate in the world in such a way that you work with things you think are true. But they're all completely socially constructed. Psychological sovereignty says basically that the human, and specifically the small group of human, like a couple of us, <laughs> independently of scientific instruments and experts and academics and all of the accoutrements of modernity can know the truth, like just like full stop. The human body alone is enough. And again, with a small group and language usually to say things that are true, to know things that are true. You don't need to open up the newspaper to know what's true. Now, most of the things in the newspaper that they tell you are true are not stuff that you can actually verify in your own experience is true. So it's just worth knowing the disconnect at which these levels operate. There's only so close propaganda can get to you. Now, as soon as you get into medicine and other things, it can get really close, right? But we'll stop there. The point is that there is an ability for the human to know truth. With, with Ken and Mark, we talk about anthroontology these days, which is basically the, the, the notion that the human... What was that, say? Anthro... Anthroontology. It's basically about the, that the human being can know truth. That science is a refinement out of. Science moves out of this more basic process that humans have been doing for a long time, which is coming into communion with the real. Recently, we've done that in overdrive with the techno-scientific rational mind, as I mentioned, out of proportion. <laughs> but we've done it for a long time with, for example, community organization, which is to say with the real that is encountered in the ethical. So there's lots to say on that, but this is the first thing to think with the propaganda is, okay, what when you feel that disorientation, it's, it's, it's usually disorientation about some narrative going on out there about something in the world. It's not disrupting your ability to be like, there's a glass here that has a little bit of water left in it. <laughs> so you just have to actually really reorient to that level. And that means that when you pick up your phone, you're like, oh, this is a phone in my hand. It's not a funnel into the truth of what's going on in the world. It's just weird. It's a phone in my hand. Like you just have to get back to the realization that certain realities are given. And then in your position as a person, decide to what extent that world of complex claims out there that is the stream of ongoing propaganda, right? To what extent are you obligated to jump into that and to make sense of it? It's an interesting question. Some people have to because it's their job. Right? Like if you're running a large company or something, or you are a certain kind of public intellectual, or sort of like some people have to know, and then they're subject to the propaganda. Can they still maintain sovereignty while being in that place, actually having to take positions in the propaganda war? Very complex. For many people, they believe that their participation in social media somehow obligates them to have to make decisions on things they could never really actually make a decision about, but have to take a stand in the propaganda war. This is very interesting. Like it used to be you read the newspaper and you could sit there and think whatever you wanted about it. Now you read your social media feed, and you have to like weigh in on certain plot lines. And then you get applauded for doing so in certain ways. That social reinforcement of thought terminating cliche. The social reinforcement of a thought terminating cliche is like boom, that's like the the masterpiece of propagandation. It's the best way to get someone to believe something. For some reason, they have no idea why they believe it. But they've been rewarded for liking a certain kind of thought terminating cliche. So this is just a long way of saying 
you do need to think about your social media use these days in a very like this is this is ground zero of a very complex multi-generational information war with technologies that are more advanced than you realize and so the question is that's actually what is in your hand and in your kid's hand i'm sorry <laughs> like it's it's dangerous and so and tiktok is a nice example like tiktok TikTok is actually designed to dysregulate the basic attentional system to create states of like addiction and trance, trance like hypnagogic states, which are exactly the states you put people in if you want to, let's say, indoctrinate them or brainwash them. And so that's like lesson number two. So for lesson number one is if you're worried about propaganda, lesson number one, you can know the truth without reading the newspaper. <laughs> you can't know the truth about the Ukraine. But you can't know the truth about the Ukraine even if you read the newspaper. So, so anyway, the point is you have to chill out, be in reality. Point two, there is that propaganda stream, and it's fascinating. And sometimes there is true stuff said in there. A lot of time, there's true stuff said in there. How do you engage with it? Why do you engage with it? Knowing that it's a space of manipulative communication. So short of becoming a monk and just cutting ourselves off from this, and if we do care about Ukraine, which I do, and I realize exactly what you're saying, you know, everybody's got an agenda, all the news, and part of it is to sort it out and seeing from what level it's coming from, what their agenda is, and bring all this together and come up with the closest approximation of what is true, knowing you could be wrong. But sometimes we just have to act from that that place. Yeah, so I'm not, and that's the thing. If you... If you can take a deliberate approach to your engagement with the stream of the media, let's say the news, then you can go in a way and kind of get oriented and not get captured. The issue is the issue is political capture, basically. The issue is when, at a very deep level, people's psyches get drawn into particular propaganda streams, basically. And this is what's happening all. It's destroying families, you know, in terms of the ability for the propaganda techniques that you're socialized into on the internet through reading and communicating flow then through your speech into communication where there's an overflow of bad faith communication tactics. This is capture. That's different from seeing everyone saying all this stuff and coming to your own conclusion and having your own way to speak about it. That's not captured by either sides kind of mimetic warfare essentially. But if you just go in and gather a bunch of ways of talking about something and come back and then throw them into conversation, you're, you've basically been weaponized by one side to create a mess. And that's the culture's degrading in part because of the overflow of strategic communication from the digital sphere into the dinner table in the living room and workspaces. Stay tuned for part two of our dialogue with the ever-brilliant Zach Stein, in which he explains the extensive information wars being waged for our attention, money, and minds by everything from Facebook to Russian trolls to AI bots. Sadly, in the 21st century, our safety and sanity require us to be aware of these threats. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. 
Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.